What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. We have a special one here today. We are building on the things that we've been thematically doing. So we did a whole series of historical fictions that featured angry men out to command battles and defeat their enemies, etc., etc. And we segued that into the fairy tale of Brave by Pixar. And we thought a lot about the mother-daughter dynamic in the fairy tale genre, how Pixar is able to tell something that both feels familiar and is totally new and brave. And we really wanted to kind of call an audible and do an episode that we had backburnered because we thought it was the right time piggybacking off of historical fiction, piggybacking off of fairy tales, piggybacking off of the role of feminism in storytelling. And we decided that we're going to talk about Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I am super excited that we decided to do this this week. And the irony of me recommending that we do Braveheart and 300 in previous weeks uh, was sort of met back to me with the delicious irony of Derek saying, should we do Little Women this week? It just warmed my heart, much like this movie does, much like uh, the book does. So we will be tackling Greta Gerwig's 2019 adaptation of the novel by Louisa May Alcott. Uh, this has, of course, been adapted many times, and the book itself is deeply, deeply beloved. But we are going to keep most of our insights to the adaptation that Greta Gerwig put forth last year. So if you haven't seen it, I would recommend oh, run, don't walk to your couch and download it because it is like, it, it really is chicken soup for the soul. Like, I feel like it warms me and cozies me and makes me feel better every time I watch it. And it's just such a balm, especially in really difficult times. So I highly recommend it, whether or not you have love for the book or any previous adaptation, or if you've never encountered Little Women in your life. But just so you know, if you love Little Women and haven't seen Greta Gerwig's adaptation, we are going to be spoiling some of the uh, very interesting and innovative things that she does with the story and speaking directly to uh, her adaptation and those changes that it makes. You know, this is the first time in a long time 
that we've talked about something recent and something that has literally just come out, even though the year 2020 has felt like 10 years and movies that came out in 2019 feel like they came out last decade. This is still a relatively new movie. And because we've been going, you know, back to movies of our childhood, we've been talking about classics, we've been talking about eras, and we've kind of shied away, not intentionally, but it's just happened from a lot of our contemporary modern cinemas. And I'm really excited to do something that is new, it's fresh, it's innovative. I'm going to put myself on blast. I had no idea that Little Women existed until this movie. I had no idea it was a book. I had no idea that it was a musical. I had no idea that it had been adapted. I don't know how many times and how many different formats. This was my first introduction to this material. And Laurel and I have had Greta Gerwig as our must-watch list ever since Lady Bird came out and how much we love that where we're like, okay, well, we're sold on Greta Gerwig, so she does something. We are very inclined to want to see it. And the best description I have heard about Little Woman came from Greta Gerwig herself when she said she wanted to make it look like a moving painting. And that is really what I think this movie makes me feel. Like you mentioned that it makes you feel cozy. It makes you feel at home. That's because it feels like I'm looking at an amazing piece of artwork hanging on a wall that I'm seeing for the first time, but it also has all of the things you love about an amazing piece of artwork. Yeah, and simultaneously you're dropped into the middle of this loving embrace of this family. So you're looking at this beautiful artwork, but you also feel kind of wrapped up and held by it. Um, And I think a lot of people have felt that way about the story of Little Women for a really long time. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you brought up that we haven't talked about something new in a while. And part of that is because we've been focusing in other places. And part of that is that there's just not that much coming out or things are coming out in different ways than we are used to. And this was actually one of the last movies I saw in the theater before we went into lockdown. I think the last movie that you and I saw together in the theaters was probably Birds of Prey. And that feels like, yeah, truly 10 years ago. Uh, but this was the Harley Quinn movie. Yeah. Wow. You're right. That's the last movie we saw together in the theater. Put this in context. This is a little off topic. Laurel and I usually see everything. Yeah. As much as we can in we the go theater. At least like two or three times a month. Yeah. We are big movie watchers. As you can tell, we have the Midnight Myth podcast where we we talk about a lot, but predominantly we talk about cinema more so than any other art form. And wow. OK, so lots of intro in there. We're really excited. There's a ton to get through with Little Women. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so we would love to hear from you at The Midnight Myth. So if you are enjoying what you hear or you just want to drop us a line, uh, check us out on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, and we're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Those are good places to reach us if you want to chat, but our Twitter especially is a place where you can learn extra fun facts, things that got left out of the episodes. We share bits of folklore and mythology every week. It's a super fun place. Check us out at The Midnight Myth. Uh, You can also find us on our website, midnightmyth.com, for blogs and extra content. That will also give you links to our Patreon page if you were so inclined to support us for a small monthly donation, 
Or if you wanted to purchase merch, you can also find the link on midnightmyth.com. The only other thing I will ask of you is that uh, if you maybe don't have money to chip in or buy merch right now, the best thing you can do for the podcast is absolutely free. Please consider leaving us a five-star rating or a review wherever you listen, especially Apple Podcasts. If you like what you hear, it really helps us get out there and makes us feel really, really good. And uh, tell a friend if you like us. Yeah, tell a friend. If you yeah. don't like us, tell your enemies. Yeah, find a uh, find someone who's a like-minded uh, philosopher of popular culture and pass us along because we'd like to uh, we'd like them to listen and tell us what they think. Wonderful. And I'm going to be dropping a couple more links into the show notes uh, uh, this week. Uh, it's been a couple of really crazy and difficult and emotional weeks for a lot of us. We lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg last Friday, and then this week the Breonna Taylor decision was handed down. So I know a lot of us are feeling really tired and really scared and really sad and really hopeless, but there is still stuff we can do. We can vote, we can keep working, we can protest, we can support those who are protesting, we can support those who have been arrested while protesting, I'll be dropping links in the show notes for places that you can support. And shall we do our briefest of brief recaps? Let's do it. All right. This is a challenge for me because there's a lot that happens in this movie. So I'm going to try to keep this brief. This movie, Little Women, features the Marsh women who grew up during the Civil War and their lives at the aftermath of this Civil War. And for context for our international listeners, the United States Civil War. It is about a family of four daughters, four sisters, who all have different talents, ambitions, and desires in life. Predominantly, the movie focuses around Josephine, also known as Joe, who has the ambition to be a working writer who's not really interested in standard female things, such as going to nice parties, marrying a handsome man who's nice and wealthy. The movie starts with them as adults, and interlaces scenes from them as children. The Marsh sisters, as followed, the oldest is Meg, and she is very interested in pretty parties, wanting to marry a a nice boy, etc. Her younger sister, Jo, who is the main character, is a bit of a tom girl who is bucking traditional gender norms and the roles of women in society. Uh, Younger than Joe is Beth, who is a little shy and quiet and selfless, who happens to be very talented at the piano. And the youngest is Amy, Amy, who can sometimes be a little selfish, a little naive, who grows up to be a very headstrong woman who is very content to marry rich in order to better her prospects once she realizes that she'll never be the great painter she thinks she should be. There's also the character Lori, the wealthy neighbor, a young man who has a sort of friend romance style relationship with Josephine or Joe when they are children. This culminates when he actually confesses that he has romantic feelings with her and she rejects him. Laurie then travels Europe in which he encounters Amy, who is there traveling in Paris with the family's very wealthy aunt March, who encourages all the daughters to marry rich as it's the only way they can have any sort of economic prosperity. And she constantly chastises her younger brother who chooses a life of being a poor pastor instead of uh, providing for the family in material means. Amy and Lori actually develop a budding romance and they end up getting married as they're traveling back to America on very sad news. 
Beth, the sweetest and most selfless of the March sisters, succumbs to hay fever or red fever, I think it Scarlet is. Scarlet fever. Scarlet yeah. fever, pardon me. She succumbs to a disease and dies. This is where the movie tends to get a little meta in which we see the character Joe writing a book of her own life, inspired by her sisters, going to a publisher and asking for the book to be published. And the publisher says, we'll only publish it if the main character ends up getting married. This is spliced between her encountering a professor that she knew, Joe, in New York, named Frederick, in which they have this sort of big romantic gesture umbrella moment where they're caught in the rain and they confess that they're in love and they get married, presumably uh, meaning to imply that the book ends with Joe marrying Frederick, but Joe in real life never ends up getting married, which she says throughout the entire movie, how marriage is not for her. She wants to make her own way as a successful writer. There's so much more in, in this, the way the movie is done is it's not shot linearly. It starts with the girls as women and then goes back to them as children. And it interlaces these scenes and overlaps. The first time I saw it, it was a little jarring because I wasn't expecting it and I didn't know the story. But once I got into the verbal cues, not the verbal, the visual clues of where they were, I got the hang of it, it not being a linear story. It's a story of them as adults juxtaposed to them as children. And in this, we get this wonderful, wonderful masterpiece of Little Women. It's such a great story. And I think a lot of us had that experience when we saw this film, whether we were familiar with the source material or not. Uh, you were a little bit jarred by going back and forth and just having a nonlinear timeline in general, which I would have been in any case. But as someone familiar with the book and the other adaptations, I was like, that's not where this story starts. Wait, what's happening here? But the visual language of the film is so uh, strong and so clear that it very quickly acclimates you. And we end up with uh, these two different stories, the, the lives of these girls as young people, and then their kind of independent adult lives and who they have grown up to become mirrored with, uh, with each other uh, with such deft uh, cleverness. The scenes that are put side by side are done so with incredible purpose. Like we have the scene of Beth getting sick when she's a child and recovering. Uh, and that scene is juxtaposed directly with a scene of her getting ill again as an adult and not recovering. And the effect that that has is so profound in showing us you know, who these these children were and who they thought they were going to become and then who they actually become and having those live side by side in a way that memory kind of does. And Little Women has always been a very nostalgic thing for me and I think for a lot of people who love it, it's always felt like it has the glow of nostalgia and looking back on your memories of Christmases and plays and hanging out in the attic with your sisters and you know, doing cruel things to your sisters or making mistakes or just having a beautiful dinner with your family. Uh, it, it has that effect of conjuring up memory and regret, but also pride and achievement. So it's a really special um, and really smart 
new way to adapt something that has been made so, so many times. And I commend you for recapping it because it's not an easy thing to do when you have not only a kind of episodic story that's really about domestic struggles, strifes, and joys, uh, one after the other, but also is presented in a nonlinear fashion. So well done. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, this movie is a group of artists working together at the height of their artistic prowess. I think this is true from Greta Gerwig on down. Every single second of this movie is very purposeful. It's done in a way that is not only visually compelling, it is also narratively compelling. It looks phenomenal. It feels textured and layered. The scenes, the places that these these people live in feel like they are living, breathing parts of the reality, the way a house should feel. A house that is big, that is empty, that suddenly then gets four young girls and it suddenly feels alive and kinetic in ways it never did. And the way that the Marsh's small home, the way it feels, the way they allow the actors to talk over each other, that sometimes it's just a cacophony of girl voices. It feels like you're in this actual place and you're with these characters. And the emotional punches, they are not pulled. They are full punches. Watching Joe and Lori have it out that they're not going to be together. Watching the recovery juxtaposed to the decline and ultimate passing of Beth hits you like a ton of bricks. The moment when the father walks back from the civil war right after Beth recovers and the way the girls just rush at him and a voice screaming daddy and hugging him. It feels like you're actually there while engaging with a piece of, I would argue some of the highest art I've seen in cinema of recent memory. And I, and all of this to say that it tells a compelling, interesting narrative in a way that is totally unique. Oftentimes, nonlinear storytelling can come across very, very surgical and very cold. For example, the movie Memento, which yeah, I, I was love. Say Christopher Nolan by Christopher Nolan, but it's very, it's very ruthless. It's very cold, and it's very interesting and engaging but you don't always feel like you're watching a movie with real human beings, even though, you know, it's a great movie. I don't say this to disparage Memento, but to draw contrast to little women where it's like, these feel like real people in a real scenario that also feels highly stylized and artistic. And that balance just could not have been easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. It really does feel like we're following the character's thoughts. It's very organic, even though it is clearly something that took intricate planning and just painstaking attention to detail to accomplish. So I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's artistry at the highest level. But people don't listen to the midnight myth to hear us gush about (laughs) how much we like this movie, or maybe you do. And that's fine. Listen to the midnight myth on your own terms, not mine. Let's get into some of the analysis. There are some really interesting things happening through this characters, through these characters, through this story in our lens, in particular in philosophy and history, I think. Where would you like to begin in the analysis portion of this episode? I have a kind of a big question that I want to ask here at the beginning, but I really want to start with a little bit of laying the groundwork and the background for what Little Women is and how this story came to be. The question that I want to keep in our minds as we move forward and maybe not answer fully by the end of this, but maybe come to some uh, understanding about is why 
why has this story of, like we said, domestic struggles and joys of four girls growing into four women, uh, not of any epic battle, not of any, uh, you know, quest uh, or anything that is quote unquote uh, important, why has this been remade so many times? Why did Greta Gerwig, whose last film was Lady Bird, uh, this very current, very kind of hip uh, story, and whose whose work has always had a very uh, very contemporary pulse? Why would she remake this film that, by my count, has been remade at least seven times? There have been at least nine TV adaptations, and countless stage adaptations, including musicals, operas, and stage plays. So why do we keep coming back to this? Why would Greta keep coming back to this? Is a question that I want to think about as we explore, uh, you know, the, the this adaptation, but the overall storytelling here. I have no idea how to answer that because I didn't know any of that existed until this movie came out. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I, I was totally in the dark about this. I have no idea why I didn't know it, but I didn't. And probably because growing up, I was never exposed to a book about little women. And most likely growing up, I probably would not have been interested in it, to be perfectly honest, because I was, you know, a boy growing up in the 80s. Yeah. And I you're have... not supposed to like books about little girls as a boy growing up in the 80s. You make a an extraordinarily important point that I will have some things to say about uh, but I want to start with just a little bit of background so we can understand where this book came from. Uh, and that starts with the author herself, Louisa May Alcott, because this is a semi-autobiographical tale. We should read Joe uh, as an analog of the author. So we should know a little bit about her going in. Uh, she was a- She's actually a Philadelphia area native, which excited me when we were uh, doing some research for this because we record in Philadelphia. Go Eagles. Yes, go birds. Uh, she was born in Germantown, which is today a part of Philadelphia. It would have been its own incorporated township when she was born in 1832, but now it's a neighborhood in Philadelphia near where we got married, actually. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. But of course, Little Women takes place in New England and her family eventually moved to New England to Massachusetts as well. Uh, Her father is interesting. His name was Amos Bronson Alcott, and he was a member of the Transcendentalist movement. So he was friends with writers like Henry David Thoreau and Nathaniel Hawthorne and Ralph Waldo Emerson, these really big names in literature in the 19th century and these really famous intellectuals. So she was educated. Louisa was educated by people like Thoreau and Emerson and Hawthorne. So Louisa had this very early uh, very amazing exposure to some of the greatest literary minds of the 19th century in America. Now, her family were also staunch abolitionists, uh, and she was a feminist. Her family served as station masters on the Underground Railroad, and Alcott served as a union nurse during the Civil War. And some of her first publications were actually letters that she wrote while she was serving as a nurse for the union. Uh, She ended up writing for the Atlantic Monthly, which is still around today and is known as the Atlantic, which I still read, uh, which I think is cool. Um, And she wrote these kind of scandalous essays and short stories and serials that got published in various publications. She ends up publishing novels under the pen name A.M. Barnard for a little while, making a pretty decent living for herself as a writer, but clearly not publishing under her name presumably because she wants to hide the fact that she's a woman because people would probably not buy her books. 
Now, she wrote Little Women, uh, which was published in 1868 and would become easily her her most famous work based on her childhood and growing up in New England with her sisters. But one of the more interesting things about Little Women is that she was hesitant to write it at first, and she only did so at the urging of her publisher. See, at the same time that Little Women was being asked for, Books for boys were coming out that featured boys going on adventures and swashbuckling pirates and whatnot. And so there was this booming market of children's literature specifically directed at boys. And Louise's publisher saw an opportunity to do the same thing for girls. Now, Louisa Alcott, as a staunch feminist, saw this ask, saw this request and said, well, that clearly says that girls shouldn't be reading adventure books. Why should I write a book that's clearly just for girls if, by its very nature, it has to exclude adventure and has to be about this domestic bliss or has to be about telling them to get married and stay at home? So she was eventually convinced to fill this void in the market, but she had a lot of hesitation about it because she felt like by writing this at all, she was creating this divide between boys' literature and girls' literature which has obviously persisted until this day, as you were saying, you were discouraged or you were never exposed to reading Little Women. Like, a lot of boys are not. Yeah, and if I was exposed to it, I probably would have been like, I don't want to read this story about girls. Exactly. And I read a really great article, which I would recommend everybody listening, if you're interested in this kind of thing, to read on Lit Hub, Literary Hub. Um, It's called Why Don't More Boys Read Little Women?, and it's by Anne Boyd Ryu, and she talks about how uh, little women doesn't get taught in schools uh, because, I mean, there are numerous reasons for this, but one of the major reasons that she speculates is that teachers don't want to alienate the boys, but they know that girls will read books about boys coming of age, like Huckleberry Finn. So little women doesn't get offered to boys, even though it really is an amazing and fascinating window to open and one that is proven over time to be accessible to people and young people especially of all genders uh you know there's a lot to say about gender presentation in little women uh, but clearly it is a story about what it's like to come of age as a girl which is a rare thing to read as a piece of universal literature but it has characters who are still kind of figuring out who they are and how they want to present. Uh, You have Joe, who is clearly a a tomboy, but who, uh, in some readings, you could clearly uh, easily read her as queer or gender nonconforming. And then you've got Lori, who's got a girl's name and wants desperately nothing better than to hang out with girls. So there's a very interesting... uh, and ahead-of-its-time mindset about gender uh, within Little Women that we're still catching up to today. And this book has such value for both boys and girls growing up. I thought that was really capital. I mean, pure Christopher Columbus background (laughs) information. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. Uh, Everything that you just said was very interesting to me. The way I read at least this adaptation, and I don't know about the others and I've never read the book, I definitely get the sense that Joe is not fully straight in some way or capacity, that there is a complication, that that she's not attracted to men in a conventional, sexual, heteronormative way. They never mention her having any 
you know, sexual connection to a woman in there whatsoever, but she never has one to a man either. And it's clear to me that this is a character that feels like they are a, squ- a square peg in a round hole, that they're constantly being, that Joe is constantly being asked to conform to these normative gender rules. You know, her her mother says her nature is too hard to, to curve. I forget the scene. Yeah, too noble to curve and too lofty to bend. You know, when they when she's talking, Joe's talking about her anger and how bad her anger is and how her anger almost got her little sister Amy killed um, when Amy falls through the ice and her mother tells her that her nature is just too powerful to change. That, in other words, she is who he she is and the world cannot force her into this box that is your choices are to marry well or marry poor, but either way you must marry. And her aunt has an interesting perspective. And this is a thing that this movie does well, which is it builds in perspectives. It doesn't sit there and say, this is the dogmatic truth of the experience of these little women. And this is the one moral or lesson we should glean from it. Rather, it allows the characters to build their own version of what they want and gives them the tools to try to overcome the obstacles to get there. And looming over this not wealthy, but not completely impoverished family is the very wealthy aunt, March. And March, her entire, her entire purpose in this story is to impart wisdom, saying this, even though she's not very nice, even though we're not really supposed to like her very much, and even though she kind of seems a little bit like... Um, like that cranky old person that's just like you young kids will never understand. She's trying to say there's a way about this world and your options are limited and your options are potentially starve or marry a wealthy man. So focus on marrying the wealthy man. Trust me, the alternative is bad. And that wisdom doesn't seem to rub off on anyone but Amy. All of the other girls really kind of buck up against that. You have Meg, who marries someone who is just a, a penniless tutor. You have Joe, who is clearly not going to conform to these standard gender stereotypes and marriage stereotypes. Then you have Beth, bless her soul, who doesn't get a chance because that's what happens in life. Some of us don't get the chance we deserve. And then you have Amy, who's like, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to listen to my aunt and I'm going to get what I want within the structures that I have to play with. It's not my job to challenge or reform or buck up against them. It's my job to thrive in them. And that, I think, is one of the things that this movie does well. And then on the flip side, you have all of these characters adding in their different perspectives under a a familiar problem, which is how do you grow up and survive in a world that is unjust, that is unfair, that is uncaring? And how do we... Uh, become the individuals that we dream ourselves to be. And when we don't become those individuals, what do we do next? And none of these characters, except for maybe Joe, really, and maybe Amy, really become what they want to be. Because Amy does get to become rich, but she's not English Lord Rich that she wanted to be. She's Lori Rich, which is still rich. Um, you know, but Joe, she doesn't become the great painter that she wanted to be either. Joe never becomes the great, you know, it ends with her just holding her book. She just gets her book published. 
You know, it does seem like she has this school, but part of that I read in this movie is maybe also fantasy, that maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe she doesn't get Marge's estate, Marge's estate, pardon me, and then gets to have the school. And then you have Meg, who wants to be wealthy and marry a dashing prince, but also really just loves her man, and so she doesn't get that. And Beth, who dies young. None of them really in adulthood get the things that they imagined as children. And that is a very common experience that many people have to reckon with when you encounter. And this is why, to put my stab at maybe why this gets so adapted, is it does this so well from so many different perspectives. The world will not give you what you want. Just wanting to be a thing and working hard at trying to be a thing is often not enough. You know, you will most likely not, this is going to sound really, really dark and cynical, but I don't mean it. You will most likely not achieve your childhood dreams. Most of us won't. And that is a reality that every adult must reckon with. For myself personally, and this is something that I really enjoyed about Amy's character. When Amy realizes she'll never be a great artist and she decides, I'm either going to be a great artist or no artist at all, and she stops. That really reminds me of my very brief and very awful music career. And that like, you know what? You recognize I had a dream of being a class, world-class studio rock drummer. And you recognize I will never be that. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much effort I put into it, it's not going to happen for me. And you have to move on. And that, I think, is really why I think this movie has so many different layers, so many different adaptations, so many different storytellers wanting to get their hooks into it, because we all have to reconcile with the reality that most dreams don't come true, and how do we move on? What's the next step when your dreams are gone? I So I think this is great. It's... Your dreams most like your childhood dreams most likely will not come true in the way that you envisioned them when you were a young person. However, Little Women tells us that there is still great joy and great love and great fulfillment and great satisfaction to be found, and that sometimes those things are found at the foot of hard work or incredible sacrifice. Uh, and that we are all going to have to give things up, whether those are our childhood dreams, our childhood loves, our uh, our childhood aspirations, whatever those things are, we may have to give them up. But once we let go of them, we can see something new in front of us. And we can see that like the greatest, the greatest joy that you can possibly experience in this life, at least according to Little Women, is being surrounded by people who love you. Uh, and the the rewards of generosity are rewards in themselves. So these young people pay it forward time and again, and while they may not achieve everything that they have set out to do, they end up together and loving each other and caring for each other into the future. They lose Beth, which is an aching and heartbreaking loss, but that brings them even closer together and that erases old rivalries, especially between uh, Joe and Amy. Life is too short to be angry with one's sisters, Joe says. So uh, I think, yeah, I think you're you're hitting at a very important part of why this story continues to be returned to, uh, is that we cherish 
uh, the glowing eyes and the like wide spirit of these children who think I'm going to be a great artist or musician or actor or writer uh, and then maybe have to settle for something different but still find great, great love and fulfillment and satisfaction in those things that they quote unquote settled for. The greatest part of my life is sitting right across from me in this podcast studio. And it's about to become even greater when our child is born at the end of this year. And that means more to me than every single concert, show, performance I ever made as a musician. That is more precious to me than my music career. And in no way, shape, or form do I have a twinge of sadness or regret over over the fact that I never became a professional drummer. It just doesn't bother me in any way, shape, or form. But that took time. And it does take time when you reconcile where you're at in life versus where you imagined yourself to be. And it isn't easy to carve meaning out of a world and a universe that presents itself as unjust, cruel, and uncaring. And I think in no world is that more clear than the world of these characters and the way that they're drawn. How clearly unjust it is that Joe can't own her own, make her own way as a writer, even though she's a great writer. How unjust it is that most writers who write stories get paid $30 a story and she gets 20 How unjust it is that the editor just chops off pages and says, get these out. And she goes, but hold on, my sinners need to be redeemed. He's like, nope, doesn't sell. And how she has to continually go back to this unjust world, this world that says, you've got to find a man and get married when she's like, that's not what I want. That's not ever what I wanted. So much so that the actual author of the real story, Little Women, had to change what she wanted for Joe in order for the book to get published. And no, it is so fundamentally unjust and cruel. Yet, in that unjust and cruelness, we have an amazing work of art that provides us the ability to reflect, to look at our own lives, and to ask ourselves big freaking questions. And this movie asks those big questions And at no point does it lose its heart. At no point does it become a philosophical exercise only. It never stops being a moving painting. And being a real story of real people uh, trying to figure out how to survive and how to thrive and succeed. I want to backtrack to a couple of things that you were saying, um, particularly about Joe's queerness, because I think it bears a little more investigation Um, gender presentation and sexual orientation are very different things and gender and uh, sexual orientation are absolutely on a spectrum and people are kind of coming around now to the fact that it's not a binary. Um, And so we can't necessarily infer that just because someone is a tomboy, they are also uh, not attracted to the opposite sex. But I, I think it's worth looking into the actual life of Louisa May Alcott and some of the things that she said about herself uh, in correspondences, she said that she believed she was the soul of a man born by some freak of nature into a woman's body. And she admitted that she had never once been in love with a man, uh, but had been in love with many, many pretty girls. And she had some documented love affairs with men, but 
there is absolutely an admission on her behalf um, how, how serious it is, we don't actually know. We don't know if she would identify as trans or as queer today, but we know that she felt very different about her gender than she was expected to feel, and we know that she was never married and she never had children. And so that uh, selling Joe into marriage, as this movie puts into Joe's mouth, uh, felt like a betrayal to her. She wanted Joe to remain a literary spinster with books for children. And so that's one of the reasons I think Greta Gerwig's ending, where she steps out of the sentimentality of Joe ending up with Professor Bear in this big romantic gesture, she steps out of that and into, uh, into the publisher's room, into the office where the most climactic event of this story is not under the umbrella. It's the negotiation of the publishing rights. It's the negotiation of the copyright and the royalties uh, that Joe gets from this story. She stops being Joe for a moment and becomes Louisa May Alcott, negotiating uh, the future for her book, which is her child. And the final scene, which is intercut with Joe and her school and her family all together, is also Joe watching from the window, watching her baby be born, essentially, watching this incredibly beautiful scene of all of the details of pressing a book uh, every little piece at a time as each page is cut and sewn together and as the gold leaf is applied to the stamp on the cover. It is an intense, uh, an intensely romantic scene, and it's also like, watching in a nursery, uh, as uh, watching your child from the window of the nursery. And she gets given the book at the end, and that's, like, that's the happy ending that Louisa May Alcott wanted. I totally agree with that. You know, it's telling that in, in the way that we interact with art in America, historically, it's always had to have an industry component to it. So in order for art to be made, it must be paid for. In order for it to be paid for, it must therefore be a commodity that is sold. And we see some interesting elements of how the commodification of art and art as industry and artist as a profession and how that shapes and changes the way art is made. And most interestingly in that scene, that negotiation scene, is Josephine's recognition that, you know, I won't take a $500 advance to permanently own this book. $500 is not a big enough price for you to actually own this book. So let's go to print and I'm going to take a gamble that this book is going to be worth owning so you can't sell it off to someone else. And that is something that is amazing. But so many artists in similar industries, in similar times, at similar genres or different genres haven't been able to make that gamble. For example, some of the greatest music that we have in American history was owned by some studio executive somewhere because the artist signed on the dotted line for the $500, the metaphoric $500, whatever amount it would be, to not actually own their art. And there is an argument to be said, who actually owns a piece of artwork? How is it that artwork becomes owned? What's the role of money in the shaping of art? If you need to make rent and someone's going to offer you $20, and $20 in the late 19th, early 20th century is a lot of money, not like today. So someone's going to give you $20, even though you know your story's worth 30 but you got to make rent. 
You sell the story, you cut down the pages, and you make sure that the woman ends up dead or married because that's what you have to do. Very few people get to be Amy's or Lori's in life, in which case they're able to make art or not make art, party and travel and live a life of leisure and not have to worry about the economic repercussions. Though Amy does worry about it because she has to work herself to that level through marriage. And she does say marriage is an economic proposition first and a romantic you know, proposition second. But there's an argument to be made in this movie about what, what commodification of art actually does to art. And the answer is it will always change it. It will always make it in some semblance a little less pure. It will make it less the artist's vision and more what the person who's like, listen, I'm taking all the risk. I got to buy the paper. I got to print it. I got to pay someone to print it. I got to distribute it. I'm paying the insurance and all the cars that are delivering it. I got to, I got to take all this risk. So, you know, if you want this, I need the copyright. And then it turns into a ruthless negotiation. And I think that's an interesting scene. And I think that's a scene in which we see the character Joe finally saying, my art's worth a lot more than $500 and I'm not selling it for $500. I'm going to keep it. It's my baby. It's going to belong to me for forever. And if you don't like it, I'm ready to walk. But that only comes after how many stories get red penned by the same publisher, every single one of them. So it's an interesting thing when we think and we reflect, you know, I think personally any artist who can get paid during their art do what you got to do. Artists deserve to be paid. It's a profession like any others. So I don't blame the artist for selling. Young Derek did. Derek, when he was making music in his teenage years and early 20 years, thought that if you changed your song for a second, thinking that it would make it more popular or it would make you money, you were that dreaded thing that the kids in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s would hate to say a sellout or sometimes a poser. It was the worst thing in the world to do is to quote unquote sell out. But you know what? I lived in a nice upper middle class life and music was never my only way for economic prosperity. And if it is, you sell the frick out. Yeah. I, I think this is a fascinating point that you're bringing up. And it's interesting because the character of Lori uh, plays kind of the role of you as a younger person here. Uh, when he sort of flits his way in and out of the stories of Meg and Amy, uh, he brings this uh, this element of judgment to their choices. He brings an element of judgment to uh, Meg when she is at the debutante ball and she's wearing someone else's very rich garments and she's letting them call her Daisy uh, and she is having fun and drinking champagne and pretending to be high society, Lori judges her for not being her authentic self. He says, what would Joe say? Because Joe is the uncompromising, true to herself, uh, heroine of the piece. And Meg is distraught by this and feels, uh, feels as though she is being unfairly judged. And Lori truly is coming to this from a place of privilege. Like he has no need to pretend to be someone that he's not because he has wealth to fall back on. He can do whatever he wants and he will go on to do whatever he wants. Uh, and so there is this, uh, this moment between the two of them where Lori has to step back and stop 
uh, judging Meg for quote unquote selling out into this debutante experience when she's young and she just wants to try something on for a little while. She just wants to know what it feels like to live in luxury for one night and she doesn't need Lori's judgment. Meanwhile, uh, later on, we'll see uh, Lori encounter Amy in Paris and uh, chastise her for giving up her art uh, because she knows she'll never be a genius. So she's gonna. She says, "I want to be great or nothing." And Lori, uh, Lori feels like she's betraying herself by choosing to marry rich rather than to go after her artistic dreams. He feels like it's a betrayal of being a March sister. And Amy comes out with this very pragmatic speech saying, I can't actually own property. Like I can't have my own money. If I get married, my children won't be my own. This is, this is not the same thing for me as it is for you. You can look at me and you can judge me from your place of wealth and privilege, but I don't have the same choices as you do. Uh, so I think that's a very interesting perspective to bring in this question of quote unquote selling out, but then it's always complicated by the gender politics of it. And so Joe negotiating for the copyright and getting her book published at all is like, go girl. Yeah, this is something that not many women could even get into the position to lobby for themselves to advocate for. So even though she has to make some compromises, her lofty nature has to bend for this. She's able to come out with this ultimate triumph of getting a pretty good royalty fee and getting the copyright for her book and then having her book in her hands. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting perspective to bring into it, but then to realize how, you know, in the 1860s and 70s, the, the gender politics of this uh, make it a much more complicated uh, proposition. You know, and traditionally, historically, most eras with art, great art being made, most artists were never historically free to make their own art. Think of the classical era of ancient Greece and Rome. All of that art was commissioned by wealthy patrons or the state, and it was told what to do. Think of all of the great art of the Renaissance in the, you know, the Italian Renaissance of our medieval slash uh, late medieval slash early Renaissance period. All of that was commissioned by wealthy patrons, by the church or by the state in order to be made. The artist wasn't free to just make what they wanted to make. It's a relatively new phenomenon that artists can make what they want. But if it doesn't sell, they starve. And I don't, I'm not saying one is better or not better, but what this movie does is it really shows the inner workings of how art and commodity become one and how the pressures to sell have a, such a huge influence on art. Think of most movies. It's only till relatively recently that directors could make the movies they wanted. Yeah, the studio system was completely, like, it had a monopoly over everything. Even then, if a studio's going to give you $100 million and they don't like the ending, they're, you're going to rewrite that ending. Yeah. You yeah. know, so, like, it's $100 million they're giving you. And relatively speaking, in today's world, $100 million is a small budget for a major movie. They might be giving you $300 million, and so they better like that ending before they're going to start writing those checks to you. So there is this huge influence of the both the gender politics and the influence of capitalism on art 
And the way this movie definitely handles that is pretty impressive. Yeah, and and accomplishes this amazing interweaving of, uh, as Greta Gerwig put it in an interview that I heard on a, a, it was through the Directors Guild of America, Ryan Johnson actually interviewed her, and I will put the link in the show notes because it is absolutely worth a listen. But we get this weaving of past, present, and fiction, as she says. So we have the story of the girls, the story of the women, and then this element where we're not so much in the fantasy, in the story, in the memories anymore, but in the real world. And Joe is standing in for Louisa May Alcott and giving her the ending that she would have wanted. So it accomplishes that in a really deft and, uh, and clever way. pivot to another question that this movie in particular raises and one of the more I think wise uh, debates that happens between the sisters near the end of the story Uh, and this happens as the girls are walking out of Aunt March's house which has just been left to Joe and Joe is talking about what she is writing this new uh, piece about their lives growing up in New England uh, and she she thinks it's probably not very good and probably not worth anything. Uh, so she's just kind of writing it off. And Meg and Amy are trying to encourage her to keep writing. And this question comes up of why why would anybody be interested in a story like this? Why would anybody be interested in a story of just us growing up? And the two sides that emerge are Joe, who believes that writing doesn't confer importance, it reflects it. So we write about things because they're important. Therefore, we should write about important things. We should write about stories that are compelling. We should write about, uh, you know, big and important moments in history, etc. And Amy, on the other hand, says, actually, I think that writing about it makes it more important. So we have the two sides of this coin, and I think this kind of also lives in the question of why this keeps getting adapted. Why does this story that is seemingly not about something important feel important to us? Does writing confer importance or reflect it? I think about this question, uh, especially as a piece of fiction that lives within a historical moment and that lives within an autobiographical moment. So this is about people growing up during the Civil War in America, uh, but it's not about the soldiers. It's not about the people on the front lines. It's not about Lincoln. It's not about politics. Uh, It's just about young people growing up during a war, dealing with poverty, doing their best to support the Union uh, when they can, and having a father who is serving uh, as a chaplain Uh, on the front lines of the war. So is it important for us to tell the stories of the people who are not on the front lines? Is it important for us to know what daily life was like, what coming of age was like during the Civil War um, as a piece of pseudo-historical fiction? Yeah, it's an interesting question and one that I think it's worth kind of reflecting on to what degree 
One, the, the philosophical debate that happens very quickly at the very end of the movie that asks if something is written about, is it reflecting its inherent importance or does writing it, making it important? And then reflecting on this movie as a kind of quasi-historical document. You know, one thing that this movie does incredibly well is it takes its setting, it takes its time period very seriously. They clearly did their research on how to make it look and feel like the late 19th century. And the the specter of the Civil War looms large on the lives of our characters, in particular when they're children, not so much as when they're adults. Um, in this respect, there's been, in the last 50 years or so, roughly, there's been a huge push among professional historians to kind of change narratives away from what away from the paradigms of modernity, which is a loaded term, or the paradigms of antiquity in historical writing, and do what's called postmodernist interpretations of history. And this is in antiquity, most of the writing focuses on something called the great man theory of history, that there are tremendous individuals. They are made by the causes and consequences of the things that drive human events. These great individuals will rise and they can shape the course of history. Why was Rome a great nation and a great empire? Because Caesar and his grandnephew Augustus made it so. They are the great men of the old Republic, early Roman Imperium. Why was America going to win the Revolutionary War, it is because of George Washington, and he is the great man of history. And that's very classical antiquity. Modernity said that there is something called a scientific historical discipline, that we can come to an objective truth about the past, and that objective truth can be independent of our biases, they can be independent of our prejudices, and we can say something about human affairs that can inform us not so much about the past, but yes, it does that, but forms a causal link to the present. So we're no longer celebrating the great man. We are now learning about the causes and consequences of events so we can understand ourselves in the present better. And that's modernity and scientific historical research. That's still focused on major events. If you are a you know modern, and this would be, Relatively speaking, the period in which uh, Little Women was written, this is when that was happening. So if you really wanted to understand the effects of the Black Plague, of the Middle Ages, you might study the Black Plague or the Crusades, these huge, huge events and how they shape things. If you were going to be more granular and you're going to study a thing like medieval English history, you might study the life of William the Conqueror and the signing of the Magna Carta, but you'd focus on these big events. America is and the revolution, American revolution part of me is about the declaration of independence. So you might study these huge big events and try to objectively understand them. The methodology by which you did that was to access archives of the world's greatest empires. Those being in particular, Britain, French, the Dutch, these uh, colonial powers amassed huge archives with vast amount of information about populations all over the planet because they had essentially colonized most of the land territory in the world, and they finally became opened to academic historians. 
And thus the academic historian was really born by this archival process. And they're trying to use the archives to objectively understand history. Then the postmodernists came around and said, BS on all of it and said, none of these theories of history actually make sense. And history is far more complicated and far more nuanced. And it is the lives of individuals and in particular, the little people that the postmodernist historian would be interested in. These are the historians of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And these are your current historical college professors today. They're all teaching postmodernist history. In this respect, Little Women as a historical document fits relatively neatly as a postmodernist history because it's not about the Civil War. It's not about Grant or Lincoln or Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee It's not about the Confederacy. It's not about slavery. It's about four girls who grew up to be young women and their lives within this backdrop. Now, most of the reason postmodern history does focus on these unconventional, compared to previous eras, these focuses on just regular people sometimes, it's because, previously speaking, only in antiquity, only great men could be historians. You had to be of that elite upper echelon to even write the history. So you're more likely to write the history of your colleagues. Then the academic historians were still a small group of elite trained college educated PhD level historians. They were predominantly men and they were white. What happened, especially in the West in the fifties and sixties and seventies, people of different races creeds, nationalities, and orientations were finally able to go to school and get PhDs. So they started changing the discourse saying it's not necessarily about these things. They created postmodernism. In many ways, Little Women is ahead of its time. As a historical document, it is very much a postmodernist historical document. It is very much in that vein. It's During the Civil War, the Civil War is important, but it's not about the Civil War. It it tackles the patriarchy head-on, but it does so on an individual level. A postmodernist ancient Roman historian might ask themselves, what was it like to be a slave in Rome? You know, a postmodernist Civil War historian might say, how did funerals change in the Civil War? And actually... There is a phenomenal book about that. It's called, uh, Bear With Me, This Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War by a famous historian, fantastic book by Drew Glippen Faust. I've read it. I have a copy of it. And it's all about the sheer amount of death changing America's relation to death because so many people were dying. And it takes a view that the Confederates, although they were rebels, were still Americans. And the bloodiest battle on a continent in the history of a continent was the civil war. And it talks about that. That's very postmodernist. What was it like for funerals? How did people grieve in this way? Little women was incredibly ahead of its time in the era of modernity. It wrote a semi autobiographical book that helps lay the foundation of a postmodernist interpretation of the civil war era. I'm super grateful for this insight that you brought. And I wasn't really sure. I was I was thinking about uh, this question of writing, conferring, or reflecting imp- uh, importance. And 
obviously that has very different implications for fiction as it does for history, but part of me felt uh, like there had to be some sort of historical implications for that. So I'm really grateful that you brought that insight into what postmodern history and historical inquiry is. Uh, as far as how it applies to being a work of fiction as well, I think we can look at Greta Gerwig's uh, interpretation and adaptation and the changes that she made to this story as being a postmodern uh, deconstructionist uh, adaptation of Little Women. It's a story that's been told straight many times. Uh, you know, we have the we have the childhood and the adulthood as different books that are put together in chronological order, and we see it as a continuum, and it makes sense to us as a linear story. But when you have Greta Gerwig disassemble and then reassemble elements of these women's lives, we can recognize patterns that maybe we couldn't recognize before. We can put memories right beside the regrets of the future. We can put uh, a recovery right next to a heart-wrenching loss. Uh, and we can learn uh, something from our younger selves that helps us grow into our older selves. So there is a very postmodern um, uh, affectation that she's putting on this that I think helps to uh, helps to highlight that difference between conferring and reflecting importance because, Yes, everything that these girls do is important because it leads to who they become. Uh, it's important that they bring a breakfast to this sick family because it brings some semblance of joy and health and wealth to this other family. And later, there will be a horrible consequence for them helping this family. Uh, we'll be able to see those links more clearly by reassembling the collective memories of these women uh, in ways that are thematic rather than linear, uh, we're able to draw those thematic connections. Yeah, and one thing I just want to mention, one of the great um, works, it is technically by an anthropologist, but it's about, in my view, about history as well as anthropology, is by a scholar by the name of Anne Laura Stoller, who wrote Along the Arch Archival Grain, epistemic anxieties and colonial common sense. And in this, Stoller argues that the colonial archive and the access that historians had to colonial archive was a, a fundamental corrupt form of knowledge to begin with because the archive says more about the empire than those that it archived. And this is one of the examples that would follow the an logic that writing confers importance rather than reflects it. The fact that these archives exist and were written down is what made them important, but they don't actually reflect raw reality. In fact, they fundamentally distort reality. They are epistemically corrupt by base definition. And by epistemically, I mean there's something faulty in its knowledge system. And Anne says, if we write it, we've made it important. And in that way, those who are contributing to historical writings, those who are, who are contributing to historical fictions, those who are contributing to historical period pieces as the writers are making it important. And that process is, according to Stoller, fundamentally corrupt in the respect that it is never going to be free of bias. It's never going to be free of prejudice. It's never going to actually reflect raw reality. It's never going to be 
anything more than a funhouse mirror and not an actual mirror. Now, what Joe says is it's it's important because we write it, right? Amy says it's important because I'm sorry. we write it. What yeah. Joe says is writing reflects importance. Yeah. It is important so we write it down would have a more traditional view, especially at historical writing or historiographical significance. It would say something really important happened, so we must write it down so we don't forget it. Um, whether that's true in fictionals or nonfiction alike, because it's important, you decided to write it down. Now, all of this to say, I am actually not a fan of postmodernism, <laughs> historical understanding, like, at all. You know, I, I, I do really appreciate the idea of inclusion and diversity of thought and ideas. Like that is super important. You don't want a small group in particular of white heteronormative men telling everybody what history is. I think that's bad. And the postmodernists are right to challenge that and are right to challenge knowledge based upon that. But at the end of the day, I'm more sympathetic to Joe. All of history happened because something was important happened. So important, the historian thought to write about it. And if you don't have that fundamental fact, you don't have history. It's linked to certain things that you need to have, such as the ability to write. You have to have a leisurely class who has the ability to write. So because of that, there has to be a system that's fundamentally unjust to a certain degree for history to happen because you have to have wealthy people living off of and exploiting the labor of others so that they have time to just sit there and think about what events are important and not and write them down. So there is a level of unjustness in all of the ancient histories, but it is to reflect importance and not create it, at least in intention. And maybe it doesn't do that, but that's why it's done. But what I think we can both agree on, and I, I thank you for that extra context there, what I think we can both agree on is whether um, whether writing reflects or confers importance, the events of Little Women, I think we both agree are important, uh, even if uh, they they don't seem like the, the accounts of great people doing great things at all times. Uh, we are able to see and cherish the importance of little moments, of little generosities, of little sadnesses and heartbreaks, and of the joys of coming together as a family. Uh, it's kind of an amazing thing how important that can feel uh, when you're in a work of art like this adaptation of Little Women. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I do think the um, idea of trying to understand history from different lenses, which is very much a postmodernist thing, is very awesome. I think having postmodernist history reflect different eras, different times, different perspectives that includes things like, you know, understanding the person who sewed the buttons who were on George Washington's uniform to me is as equally valid to understand why George Washington did what he did. If you want to understand the American revolution. So I do agree with a lot of postmodernist teachings, but it's core like root philosophical um, argument is something that I do struggle with. I think that's absolutely fair. Uh, we've gone a little over time, and that can happen when you're talking about something that you love that has this much richness in it. 
Um, but as we wrap up here, I just want to share a couple of final thoughts about Little Women and especially Greta Gerwig's adaptation of it. Uh, one thing that a lot of people who read Little Women or see the movies as young people will do, especially young girls will do this, is try to categorize themselves and say, I'm a Joe. I'm a Beth, I'm an Amy, or I'm a Meg, and which one are you? And it's it's tempting to want to do that. It's just like sorting yourself into a Hogwarts house or picking a Sex and the City character to identify with. We clearly see ourselves in these little women, and we want to say, I'm this one, and I am this one proudly. But one thing that I think Gerwig's adaptation does so beautifully uh, and that is so revolutionary and so feminist is that it takes the stories of all four women who usually you're going to read this and want to be Joe. You're going to want to identify as Joe or be seen as a Joe uh, because she's the nonconformist and she's the brave and passionate and successful writer. Greta Gerwig takes all four of these women, shows their very different choices and their very different paths, and says every single one of these women is valid and is successful and is someone to be admired and aspired to be like. Even Amy, who is usually seen as a villain, uh, ends up having a really fulfilling life and being someone who you can really look up to and say, she's got a good head on her shoulders and I would be proud if my life turned out like her. Uh, obviously, we, we don't get to see Beth grow and blossom into adulthood, but we would all love to be as selfless and as caring uh, and as beloved as Beth. We'd all love to be as fiery as Joe, and we would all love to be as contented in marriage or in motherhood or in just your your, your place in life as Meg. Uh, all of these women will continue to have struggles. They will continue to come up against things that feel unsatisfying, but they all get to express their version of being a woman uh, in a way that is completely valid and important. Well, until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.